0: I think it's I think it's quite marvellous actually. We've got uh, such a such a important man in the house. It's great, isn't it? Eh? Matthew, welcome to St Paul's. Thank you. Could you um just uh, I know you a little bit, but there are lots of people here who might not know you at all. So why don't you begin by just telling us a little bit about yourself, rather not dear friend, you, Matthew Frost.
1: Okay, so just a few things. So uh, I better start with my family. Well, maybe I'll start with my faith. I, I love Jesus. I follow Jesus, just in case you're wondering a little bit about that. Uh, I'm part of a fantastic little local church in St. Mary's East Molesey. Uh, it's a church plant, and uh, we're very early on in the days, just a year in, and it's exciting. Uh, I'm married to Catherine, um, and have been. we were, we were actually married by Sadie Miller uh, at HTB. Uh, almost 20 years ago, so this November will be our 20th. I've dropped my iPhone, oh no, it's broken. I won't be able to give you any stories. Um, There we go, it's back again. Uh, So uh, we have four fantastic children. Uh, Joshua, uh, the eldest, is 15. Uh, He is now as tall as me, six foot two and a bit, which is terrifying. He's only just 15. Um, Twins, Laura and Natalie, um, and they are very special. Uh, They have special needs. They were both born identically with Down syndrome. And so that's been a a tough but wonderful journey. And then my youngest, uh, 11 years old, is Eleanor, who is a delight and uh, thinks she's 18 or 19. Um, uh, And I've done all sorts of things in my career. So um, most of my life um, was in sort of a mainstream commercial world. Uh, working for JP Morgan and McKinsey and um, Bowater. Uh, but I had some amazing stints throughout that uh, where I got to uh, go on, uh, do, do stuff that was much more frontline, hardcore. So I worked in Somalia um, uh, for a humanitarian aid organization that I led and ran a program in Afghanistan. Um, and I've been really involved, always at the background, uh, with issues of poverty and injustice. Um, uh, and, so, and so for the last eight and a half years, um, I have been at Tear Fund brings me up to date.
0: That is fantastic. Now, now uh, I've, I've asked you here because um, we, as a church, we, we, every time there's an international disaster, we would give to it. And uh, whenever we do a special collection, we tend to uh, uh, give all of those offerings through Tear Fund. And I understand the heart of Tier Fund, but maybe not everybody here does. So, could you introduce tear Fund to us? What's it all about? What's its DNA? What's its it? What's heart?
1: Okay, well, let, let, me, uh, let me have a go. I mean, do add if you think I'm missing things, Mark, because you've been on the journey as long as I. Um, uh, so for me, it's all, it can be uh, summarized in a little uh, phrase, following Jesus where the need is greatest. Uh, let me just unpack what the following Jesus means to me. Uh, it firstly means... Um, that we work in a way to tackle poverty and injustice in a way that seeks to keep Jesus uncompromisingly at the center of how we tackle poverty and injustice. Uh, I remember a few years ago I was sitting um, with a bunch of other Christian CEOs uh, and we were sort of had a Chatham House Rules, so I can't tell you who said what. But we were all sitting around and wrestling with the question, what does it mean to be a Christian organization? Uh, And I remember for most people in that room, rather disappointingly and depressingly, it really meant nothing more than our values were somehow inspired by Jesus at some point. And I wrestled with that because, for me, most organizations, actually, you could argue, uh, have values that are influenced by Christianity, by a Judeo-Christian worldview. Uh, And for me, it was, well, that's just the beginning. Uh, The real heart of following Jesus is that we long to see in all of our work, which is focused on the poorest in a sort of economic measure, but we long to see whole life transformation. We long to see people learning to follow Jesus, discovering Jesus, falling in love with Jesus. Uh, And we're passionate about that because we think it's the key, well we may come onto this a bit later, to sustainable development. So following Jesus is uh, is about keeping Jesus uncompromisingly at the center. It also leads us to focus on working with the local church. It leads us to keep prayer front and central in everything we do. Uh, it keeps us uh, so many things, uh, wrestling with that. That's the following Jesus bit. The second bit is where the need is greatest. Uh, and one of the things I love uh, about uh, working at Tearfund is in everything we do, there is this passion to get to where the need really is the greatest. Um, just actually on Wednesday, I was sharing with colleagues um, uh, at Tearfund a story of when I went to Haiti. Uh, and in Haiti, um, uh, if you remember, there was this earthquake three years ago, 2010, pretty much exactly three years ago. Huge earthquake that devastated the capital city, Port-au-Prince. But the epicenter was actually not in Port-au-Prince. It was about 50 miles to the west. Uh, And when our operational teams got there, they didn't stop in in Port-au-Prince where most people stopped. But actually, they then got, got in vehicles and drove on this destroyed road, which usually would only take a couple of hours. Uh, and I think it took them a day, if not two days, to get to Leogan, which was, really was at the epicenter of this earthquake, and they discovered even more extreme devastation there and said, this is where we're gonna work. And not only that, when I turned up a few years later to see the work, I discovered that in Leogan, we had worked there. But there we had not just focused on the easy to access commune. We'd gone to the furthest extremes. So I was taken on this drive um, where we were driving for, you know, for a few hours out of Leogan. And we were driving up this, what I thought was a, a sort of a very wide road, but it actually turned out to be a riverbed. Uh, that is actually drive five months, drive for five months of a year, and you have. That's the only way you can get to these villages. We drove up there for half an hour, then drove off and up into the hills, and eventually arrived at the communities that we had serving. Uh, and I just, I just share that because there's this passion to get where the need is greatest, and of course that's not the geographic need. It's also uh, where, I mean, in Myanmar I was there recently, and I loved the fact that there we, we were working with. Um, people who are living with disability who are so often completely ignored in interventions because the need is so great and often you just do what's easiest uh, but again there's this hunger to go where the need is greatest so that, that for me summarizes it, I could say so much more but following Jesus where the need
0: is greatest. Okay so so you come from a professional uh, life where you've been involved in these incredibly large FTSE 100 companies and Doing amazing stuff, and you've ended up being the CEO of a an. What do we call it? Do we call it an aid agency? Do we call it a charity? What do you call it? You've ended up being the CEO of this thing. How did you end up there? And what do you? How do you, What do you call it? What's this? At its heart.
1: Um, so
0: well, let me come back to that
1: one later because I think I, I still wrestle with that too. We'll yeah, I'll come back to that later. Um, so how did I end up there? Um, Well, I think for a lot of my life, I was really driven by a desire to, I still wrestle with this, uh, to prove to people that I'm bright and capable, I've got what it takes. Uh, And I think only really in my journey at Tear Fund, am I beginning to really appropriate what it means to to live out of my identity in Christ alone uh, and not seek approval from others. But for many years, I was driven by that. Maybe made me quite competitive. It made me always trying to get the best and the job I could. And, and it eventually led me to work for McKinsey. Uh, and the thing is, having been at five and a half years at McKinsey, uh, and, and McKinsey was amazing. This is a, it's a strategy consulting firm. It's kind of if, you, if you're an MBA, if you do a master's in business, business administration, it's the organization everybody wants to work for. And I got there, and I was there for five and a half years. And the end of it, and I learned tons there, uh, at the end of it, I, I found myself thinking, what next? Yeah, okay, is this everything? It's almost a classic alpha question. Um, uh, and I found myself saying, well, well, what's next, Lord? And I then sort of took a job, uh, headhunted to be head of strategy for Department of Education and Skills. So it was a sort of recruited because I got this tick box on having worked for McKinsey. Uh, and within about three months there, I, I, was, I hated it, I would, it was just drove me potty. I didn't like the culture, I found it really hard. Um, I discovered that actually government is not as organized and efficient as I thought it was. Uh, and, uh, and within three months I said, this is not what I'm gonna do. So I ended up with a bit of a midlife crisis. Uh, and I was at, some, uh, at, Mark's, um, uh, sorry, at, at Paul Perkins Church, um, uh, St. Mark's Battersea Rise at the time. And they were running this brilliant course called Adventure of Living. Uh, which was all about discovering your calling. And I thought, well, that might be a good thing to do. Maybe I should ask the Lord what he thinks for a change, Uh, which I'd only really done, if I'm honest, once before in my life, I think. Um, uh, And I went through that course, uh, and out the other side of it came out with just an overwhelming sense of the Lord telling me that whatever I should do next, it should be uh, something... Whoops, I'm dropping everything. Um, uh, It should be... um, It should be... Um, something in the area of international aid and development, so something I'd done before. Uh, I thought, you know, go back to that route. I'd done this a few times. Secondly, it should be in some kind of leadership role, um, but I mean, that could be in anything. And thirdly, uh, it should be in a Christian organization. Uh, and I was, just, I was just sharing earlier that I'd always thought it was a bit of a cop-out working for a Christian organization because you know, real people are out there in the real world, uh, and it's just too easy and quick because it's, it's so nice and warm and friendly. Uh, tell me about that later. It's actually not like that. <laughs> it's actually challenging working in Christian organizations in all sorts of good ways. But I thought these three things, Christian organization, leadership, and something in international aid and development. And, and within six months, I had been offered my two dream jobs, uh, one at Tier Fund and one working globally for World Vision in strategy and organization. Uh, and, and for all sorts of reasons I could I could um, expand, I felt the Lord absolutely clearly say, I want you to come and work at Tearfund. Uh, I still remember very much sitting down with the board at the time, uh, many of whom have now moved on, um, in, a, in a hotel in, Oc- in, in Oxford, uh, which was where they really wanted to grill me. Uh, and just really just check that they were making the right decision in appointing me. And I remember sitting there saying, Matthew, you've got to be completely real with them. Uh, and so I spent the whole of lunch telling them about all my weaknesses, all the things I wasn't any good at, because I wanted them to know. I didn't want them to make, them, I didn't want them to make a decision without truly knowing real me, who I really am. Uh, and I still was appointed, uh, and that's how I ended up joining.
0: There you go. It was a great decision, but it was a great decision. <laughs> so. Um, Okay, I want to um, now just change tack a little bit. So um, last year, some of you may be aware of this, but over $8 billion was given to charities. So $8 billion given to charities last year. Um, And lots of that money, Matthew, is collected for the same things. So we've seen the huge numbers as they come out in the press, you know. So much is given to Haiti, so much is given to the Philippines, so much is given to Pakistan. So we see this millions upon millions upon millions of pounds going into places where a pound goes a long way. And all of a sudden, they've got millions of pounds going in. And, and the question that's raised is, how do we know the money is used wisely? Surely there must be corruption and theft and all sorts of stuff going on and we read about some of that and if that is the case A, why should we keep giving and B, is TIF and really secure in this sort of thing? Is it a good organisation to give through? I know you'd say yes but why don't I justify
1: it? Yeah, no, it's a great question. I mean it's a question that so many people do ask. Um, I think the first thing I'd say is that when we think about aid so much of our concern over aid uh, is very much, a ta- well, let me just step back. There's three big flows of aid. Okay, the, the first one is government to government. So where governments basically give to the government in Africa. The second big flow is in disasters. So a huge disaster focuses everybody, and, and actually, and there's a huge need to do a lot because people are dying. There's a pressing need that must be responded to, otherwise people will die. And the third, is is the long term process of working in, in the vast areas where poverty is this grinding poverty, uh, where two billion people, uh, two more than two billion, a third of the world's population, live under two or three dollars a day, uh, which is a long term. Now, in each of those three three flows, most of the big problems of corruption. Uh, abuse uh, um, uh, uh, and where the money is squandered and lost is on that first flow, the government-to-government funding. And books have been written about it. Uh, So Dan bisa Moyer wrote a well-known book called Dead Aid a few years ago, and it's all about the government-to-government funding. But that conditions so much of the way we then think. It conditions a lot of the questions that then are, is money spent well? That's the first thing to note. The second and the third disasters and Uh, What I would say then, so if I come now to Tier Fund, because we very much, we don't do the government to government, but we we do lots in responding to disasters, and we do masses, uh, and we're passionate about also this long-term development, the grinding poverty uh, beyond just the disasters. There's two things I'd probably throw out to you just to think about, um, that we're thinking about all the time. The first is, have we at Tier Fund got systems in place to make sure uh, that we do not have problems of fraud and corruption? Because I mean that's that's basic. Uh, we really have to work hard to make sure the money is just not being used fraudulently, and that takes us into the whole business of selecting our partners wisely, of having systems and processes in place to check what is actually doing, to follow up and see the impact of what's being done, uh, and there's a whole set of processes we put in place to try and make sure that happens. And you know that's one thing we spend a lot of board meetings chewing over: is have we done enough on those things? Uh, and of course, uh, and so a lot of, a lot of goes in. So we have to get, that's the basics though. To be honest, the real issue for us is that's important, but the real issue is having spent the money uh, in a non-fraudulent way, so it's got to the front line, is it actually making a difference? Is it actually making a long-term difference? Let me give you one example. When I was in Afghanistan, uh, leading and setting up this this program in Afghanistan uh, in 96 and 97, um, uh, across the city, capital city, um, while I worked there, I think I I eventually learned that 970 uh, hand pumps had been constructed over the last few years by a variety of people to serve the community. Over 90% of them, by the time I arrived, were no longer working. Uh, And there's an example of where, well, there wasn't an issue of fraud. The money all got there. It was well spent on hand pumps, but they were all broken because the question of sustainability had not been factored in. So, for me, the key question on this impact of actually making sure the money is well spent is all about how we work. How do we work in a way that is truly sustainable? How do we work in a way that is no longer dependent on outside provision? How do we work in a way uh, that actually gets to the heart of development, which is all about changing mindsets and behavior in people's minds? How do we work in a way that is not just focused on maybe the presenting economic need, but actually goes to the heart of the problem of treating people's holistic needs? And I think that is the challenge of development. Yes, the systems, we can, and I think we've done tons at Fund to do that well. It's still very challenging, though. Let me be clear: it's still incredibly difficult working in some of the places we work. Incredibly, it's not like you know, if we're tackling fraud and in- fraud in the UK, we can rely on a lot of things: the law, systems, high capacity, and so on. When you're in a destroyed country like Haiti, you turn up and nothing's working. It's much, much harder to do that well. But we really aspire. But the real question, I would, ch- I would say is how do we make sure that the money is actually spent in a way that leads to sustainable, long-term, transformational development? And that really is the question uh, that
0: we should all be asking, I would say. Okay, well, that was my, my next question to you, really, is we can give and give and give and give and give, but how do you... We can't give for the rest... We could give the rest of our lives, but you can't give forever. How do you, How do you work towards that place where people become self-sufficient, where there is sustainability in some of these nations? Because they've got, there's, there's rich land, there's lots of minerals, there's lots of good stuff there, but none of it's being used. How, how do you get to that place where there's sustainability? Well,
1: um, I sorry, quite like Emily, Emily's story she shared earlier, because for me, in many ways, that does illustrate it. Uh, it is, what is going on in someone's mind? Now imagine we de- we're dealing, we turn up in a community at a local level, and most of the people there are sitting there waiting for tearfund to turn up, or waiting for some aid organization to turn up, and come and solve their problems for them, or they're waiting for something to happen. Uh, and so much of the, the way Big Aid thinks about getting people out of poverty. It is this way. It is, we've got all this money. Uh, we have the answers. We've just got to turn up in these communities and dig a well, build a school, a few other things, and everything will be sorted for this community. Uh, and, and we're almost, we're working in a way, I'm not we, at the, but, but as the aid sector, the big aid sector, we're working in a way that is reinforcing that mindset. Yeah, we, we turn up, we build the well, like in Afghanistan. We've built a school. We've done all these wonderful things. Don't we feel good about it? Well, we do. We look at it, but actually uh, the people there are sitting there, and, and we've been encouraging this dependency mindset of waiting for people to come and meet our needs. There's the big language in the aid world, speaks about the rights agenda, or the rights-based approaches. I don't know if anybody's familiar with that whole idea. It's very common across the aid world. And basically the idea there is, we just need to figure out what people's, what human rights are. We then need to go and tell these people what their rights are. We then need to get them. We then need to go and beat up the governments and say, meet their rights. And the whole mindset is to meet people. So big government or organizations come in and meet people's rights. But actually, the key is, in Emily's story, was something changed in someone's head. And that you know, many of my frontline colleagues would say, who work at the frontline, would say, 80% of development is not about meeting needs in those ways, it's about changing behaviors and mindsets in the people we're longing to serve. And the question is, how do you change a heart? Almost every question in development, not every, but so many questions of development, tackling poverty and justice, boiled down, in the end, to one question. How to change a human heart. Because if you can change a human heart, if you can change the way people see themselves, everything begins to to unfold. So we both traveled to Uganda, okay, sort of February last year. And do you remember that group of women we met? The women living with HIV and AIDS in that one village?
0: Yeah, Yeah? they do. With Patrick.
1: With Patrick, that's right. Uh, and Patrick too. Uh, So we met uh, in one village, we heard the story, and we listened to a group of women living with HIV and AIDS. Now normally, if you go into a village in Africa, you will not hear from the people living, especially the women living with HIV, you will not hear their voice in a village meeting. Because they consider themselves to be the most worthless people. And the village considers themselves to be the most worthless people. These women were amongst the most joyful, expressive people we met on our time in Uganda. They shone. These women shone. They were vocal. They were the first to speak. And do you know why? What was the change? The change was because they had believed what Scripture said about their identity. We are made in the image of God We are valuable. We are glorious beings. We are adopted children. (laughs) And that changes everything. It changes everything. And we also met Patrick, as you said, the reformed alcoholic. So I I think if I remember the story straight, uh, and you'll have to tell me if I got this wrong, he he was passing through the village one day, and we'd just started this process through uh, drawing alongside the church to equip them to go through this process of mobilizing them for holistic community mission. Uh, and uh, and this community was beginning to get together and he was walking along and said, what's going on here? And he, he was an alcoholic and he walked in and by the end of the meeting, uh, they'd elected him to be uh, the chairman of their newly formed uh, sort of community mobilization group. And by the time we arrived there, his life had turned upside down, again through the power of the word and being part of this loving community and what he learned on going through this process. So much so that when we got there, he was one of the people who had then provided resources to this group of women living with HIV and AIDS to help them become truly sustainable. And I remember he had this lovely phrase where he said, I had not realised that every... You know, he, he said, I was waiting. He had this mindset of waiting for others to come and meet his needs. And he said, I had not realised that I was living on gold. Uh, and the gold he was speaking about was all of the resources. See, he see The process he went through... Uh, and Scripture opened his eyes to see all of the resources he already had at his disposal. I mean, so going back to your question mark, I mean, that I think that's this, the sustainability is fundamentally about um, about helping people change mindsets and behaviours, and that is, I think, the biggest unanswered question in development. I think the biggest answer on the scripture is how do you get truly sustainable development that is no longer dependent on aid organizations and the, really the key to that question is how do you change hearts and minds and of course that's where the gospel is i mean don't we all believe that is what the gospel does don't we all believe that's the point and purpose of the local church and of course that's why we're so passionate about hunting out and seeking out the local body of christ in whatever form it takes and finding ways to work alongside it because that's how holistic transformation begins. That's the key to sustainable development. And that's,
0: Matthew, that's um, what was so powerful about that story about Patrick actually was that it was a church meeting at which they were opening scripture, telling the story. And if I remember rightly, they said, they actually asked who would lead this. They said, what's our biggest problem? We've got all these women who've got AIDS. That's our big problem. And their children are always begging and stealing from other people to get food and other things what we need is to create a farm that will look after them and we need a leader and if I remember rightly Patrick was the only one in his drunken state who put his hand up and said I'll lead it and what was so powerful was the community said okay and he hadn't had a drop of drink from that day onwards and he was the one who had the fresh water pump that looked after these women. They all, every woman had their own home. Every child of theirs was now in education. Every, every time any woman found herself particularly sick because of AIDS, the other women all gathered around and helped that community. And if anybody couldn't afford their drugs, the others would chip in and pay to ensure that it was working well. It, it was that was mind-blowing, wasn't it?
1: Sunny, absolutely stunning.
0: But but, but, but but the other thing you, you talked about um, you talked about the hand pumps, one of the other things we saw was that i don 't know if you remember i don 't know if you, your four by four went to that hand pump that we went to, but there was that old man looking after the hand pump. did you go to that it was it was an amazing situation. We went to this hand pump and there was a, there was a fence round it, do you remember, and there was this old man there, and he was like the hand pump guard. <laughs> This was just, this was his, he just, this was the hand pump. And uh, uh, I was with Jamie, one of the other guys on the trip, and was able to ask this guy, and I said, uh, I said, what's this hand pump? What difference does this hand pump make for you? And this was his response. He said, This is the first time we've had clean water in this community since creation. And it's my job to make sure this hand pump works and to keep the animals away from it, that everybody can get clean water and be looked after. It was powerful. It was just powerful. And it wasn't about us doing it. Guess who built the hand pump? They did. They were the ones that put it in. They were the ones that maintained it. But who enabled them to do it? It was Jane, actually, I think.
1: Jane Ashlaw, yeah.
0: Jane Ashlaw, who's coming here in March, and yeah. her explaining through the yeah. stories of Scripture yeah. what God might do.
1: I mean, that's what's so... And, and you, you think, you just take those people, and what's so wonderful about this process uh, is that um, uh, you know, Patrick and, and the man who uh, was guarding um, uh, the hand pump and each of these people, because they did it themselves and together, uh, that, that, that then builds for the next time it builds their confidence to do it the next time and it becomes this this virtuous circle uh, of grace and love that just flows over to the community and what's so lovely is when the church starts doing it and modelling it because they've heard what scripture says because they are listening to what Jesus teaches and the stories and the parables in the, uh, in the Bible and that inspires them to go and do the same because they experience God's love and we've got to go and do the same the rest of the community is all looking on. You know, people who are not following Jesus, they're all looking on and saying, what's happening <laughs> there? Uh, and, and, and as a result, it ripples out into the community. Um, and that's stunning to see it build and build and build because people grow in confidence as they do it.
0: Uh, and Matthew, it's through the local church because there's a local church in every community?
1: Uh, so, um, so in the sense of... Well, let me... So two, two, two points. Sort of, I'm trying we, we, Maybe what's behind your question. Uh, I mean, I, I often like to say uh, why why work through the local church. So this is especially when I'm speaking to um, uh, so people who who don't who don't know Jesus in the secular world. And I can kind of say, doesn't it make sense to work through? You know, if we really believe in in community structures, you know, m- most development organisations that are uh, um, uh, that are working at community level would say, you know, what we really need, Mark. You know, what we really need is. Um, yeah, for sustainable development is we need a local organization, okay? Number one. Number two, it's got to be passionate about justice and poverty, okay? It's got to be that, too. It's got to be sustainable, so it's got to be there when all the aid organizations have gone. So it's got to, and it's got to be locally owned, not us. Uh, and so we're going to go and set one up. And I'm going to say, well, look, well, there is this thing called the local church can't we work with the local church it's already there for God and that's its mandate a huge part of its mandate to love and serve their community and to bring transformation whole life transformation isn't that what this church does amen that's what that's what church is supposed to do and I can kind of say, well and do you know how many local churches there are in the world
0: no idea <laughs> no
1: idea uh, well there was one Richard year, Thomas might know, yes. does well, he know? I, well one year I went out and counted them all Uh, And uh, and, um, uh, who knows what the exact number is, no one knows, the Lord knows but it's something like 9 or 10 million, I mean the point is the network of local churches around the world is without question the largest grassroots civil society structure in the world, so why on earth wouldn't you work through the local church, why wouldn't you and that's really sort of very much captured, but Maybe the other part of your question. So firstly, we do work through the local church. And actually, it is huge. It is the largest civil society grassroots network on the planet. So let's work through it. But the other side is that there are some places where it's really difficult because there are no local churches. So I worked in Afghanistan in Kabul. And there were no local churches there. Or if they were, they were underground and hidden. But even there, when I was there, one of the things that most moved me, is the story that most inspired me a year and a half ago, a year ago, Um, was this, when we were working there, I was working for a Christian organization at the time in 96 and 97. It was just after the Taliban had stormed Kabul and then we turned up. It was a pretty hair-raising time to be in Kabul. Uh, The the frontline fighting was only 30 miles to the south. There was regular shelling at night. It was a pretty tough place to be, frontline hardcore stuff. And we had a, a local Afghan staff working for us. Why we were there, we would have regular, we lived in a way that was deliberately um, and intentionally visible about our faith in Christ. We didn't hide it, we were wise, but we were prayed very openly. Our staff knew we prayed. Uh, We were very open and expressive, but very sensitive, of course. And we had endless little conversations resulted in that. So I remember sitting in a car driving to one of the project sites, chatting with uh, Innie, one of um, our local staff, and he asked me, so Matthew, who do you pray to? Who are you praying to? I had no idea about the Christian faith, really, and I explained who we were praying to. And I had a few other conversations like that, and he had other conversations with others over the years. And that was in 96 and 97. Uh, about a year ago, I got an email from him completely out of the blue. And he, he filled me in with what had happened in the next 15 years. And he basically, the Lord had taken him on a long journey where about eight years ago, he came to saving faith in Jesus. And it all started there simply because of that first encounter that then planted the seed and the spirit then worked in his heart and led him into all sorts of other relationships. Um, and he, he'd only been able to tell me that story 15 years later because it then took him eight years to get his whole family out of Afghanistan get, and get asylum status, uh, get politi- become a political refugee in Germany uh, and be sure of that. And only then was he in a safe position where he could come out and say, now I am following Jesus and my whole family is my whole household. And I love that story, because it illustrates how, even in a place where there is no church, how we live, how we live in a way that introduces people, that helps people to encounter Jesus, it's really challenged there, that I can either live in a way, in Afghanistan, in a way that is drawing people, is provocative, is making people ask questions about Jesus, or I can live in a way that is pushing them away. Uh, and I want to make sure that when we're working in these places, we still live in a way that is drawing people to Jesus, even if we do not see the fruit of saving faith for years, because the Lord is working in these hearts and minds. And so that would be that's that's why the church is important. So it's a very broad definition. Uh, it's 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 wherever whatever the local body of Christ looks like in the context we're in, because it's everywhere. Sometimes it looks like a church like this building. Sometimes in the slums of Mumbai, it's just a bunch of people in a slum meeting under a tarpaulin. And sometimes in Afghanistan, it's just me being there trying to represent Jesus as best I can.
0: Thank you. It's pretty good, huh? Two fun, pretty good organization, eh? Hey? That's why we work through them here. Now, this is what we're going to do. Uh, I would love you to tell the person next to you Actually, no, Tell, get into little fours. Just turn around. I'm going to get you to turn around, speak to someone you don't know. That's scary, isn't it? I'm going to get you to turn around, speak to someone you don't know. And I want you to say one thing that you found inspiring about this. But also, Richard is going to run around with some paper and some pens. And we would love you, if you've got a question to give to Matthew, we'd love you to write it down just in the next couple of minutes. And then we're going to bring it up here and we're going to put some questions from the floor to Matthew. Is that okay? So, why don't you turn around? If we can put some music on, Monica, that would be really great, just for a few minutes. And uh, so one thing that you...